Good morning. We are continuing our Sermon on the Mount series. We're actually looking at the Lord's Prayer. And last week we looked at our Father in Heaven. And the key is to continually remember that as we go forward, that we are adopted. In Galatians 4, 6, Paul tells us um, that the Spirit dwells in us by whom we call Abba, Father. The Spirit in us cries out, Abba, Father. So prayer is couched in this. But in that very same verse, our verse this morning, Jesus says, pray like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That is our verse in our passage this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love to talk about your being our Father, but we are scared of hallowing your name, if we're honest. So Father, I know the tendency would be to tune out, to be fearful, to ignore. I pray Your Spirit would be present, opening our eyes to Your beauty and glory, and that we would love to make You famous, first in our own hearts and then to those around us. Amen. Um, We love the Narnia series at our home. I have a feeling a lot of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia. If not, you've seen the movies. And I have a story about how C.S. Lewis started that, but I went looking for it again, so it might be apocryphal. So part of it's true. I can't. If there's a Lewis scholar among us, later you can tell me if I'm wrong. But what we know is true is that like the uh, professor in uh, the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, Lewis became a place for several children to come during the bombing uh, in World War II when the children were shipped out uh, because of the bombing of Germany uh, in London and other cities in England. And so he has these kids in his home. Now here's where it gets potentially apocryphal. This is the story I read. I couldn't find it again. My understanding is that he observed these kids and they were boring. They had no imagination and it kind of frustrated them. So of many reasons why he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, one reason was he wanted to see these children and all children and all of us in general recapture our sense uh, of the other world, of imagination, of the beauty of what we can't see. And so he created and invented Narnia. Now there are other reasons and stories behind that, but, but that really kind of follows also neatly with what we've talked about before with Schaefer who wrote True Spirituality and how he says in our post-enlightenment era we have the two chairs, the two worldviews, and I think most of us in this room really exist in the naturalist worldview. And so when it comes to Christianity, if you're a Christian, rather than having our worldview seamless with the supernatural, it's almost as if we've kept our natural view, that is, we, we look at science, we look at everything with ration and reason and explanation and facts, and then over here is this other worldview that we reserve for maybe Sunday mornings or conversations, or prayer. But we really struggle with bringing the two together. And I think the proof of that is your prayer life. You can tell whether you do this separating of these two things by your prayer life. If your worldview is truly that all things are imbibed with supernaturalism, that it's everywhere, then you will be a vibrant prayerer, if that's a word. But if you are a boring prayerer, or your prayer life is non-existent, then probably 
you live out of this natural world, and prayer is sort of this thing you're just told to do. It doesn't really come into your regular life. And this petition, which is what it is, last week was more of a preamble, our Father in heaven, and now we're in the first petition, hallowed be thy name. What we have is we have Jesus in teaching us to pray saying, let's start at the beginning, the name of God. Now, the name of God is an interesting thing. The Bible loves names. Throughout the Bible, God places a lot of emphasis on names, right? Even Adam, the first man, his name means man, right? So even his name is kind of what he was. And what was his job? He went around looking at animals, studying them, and then he named them, right? He was the first zoologist. And then you have Abraham, right? Abram was his name. His parents gave him, and it meant father uh, or exalted father, but then God changed his name to Abraham, meaning father of nations. And Sarai meant princess, and Sarah meant princess to many. So God loves names. But I think the most obvious place in Scripture is in the Exodus where Moses is told to tell the Hebrews and tell Pharaoh that I am sent to him. That was the name of God. And scholars call that the the Tetragrammaton. Did I say that right, Thomas? Thank you. That is, they really didn't write out the actual name of God. And so no one really knows the right pronunciation. But most people would say it's either Yahweh or Jehovah, but the vowels are missing, and so they've had to be added because the, the Hebrews, when they write it, either didn't include the vowels, or they would also substitute the word Adonai, which means Lord. So they were very reverent toward his name. But the meaning is also obscure. I am that I am, right? Popeye ended up using that lingo. But the idea is that God is the source of all things. He is the only named person. He's not a creature. person who's always existed. And nothing can be descriptive of him. He describes everything. But also, he has other names in the Old Testament. I have to be honest with you. When I've listened to talks or lectures or seen Bibles with all the names of God, I've never gravitated toward that. So I get it. Some of you might be kind of like, yeah, let's get past this. But it's important, so bear with me. Because uh, some people use these words like they know what they mean, and you're like, you don't know what those words mean. So like Elohim means strength or power. Here's one that you'll hear people talk. Jehovah Jireh. Have you ever sung that? It means the Lord will provide. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals. Jehovah Raha, the Lord our shepherd. What is going on? His names and his attributes are synonymous. So when Jesus says, hallowed be thy name, when he says thy name, he is saying the character, the nature, the very being of who God is. His attributes. We see this in Psalms. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Is the psalmist saying that when you travel around the earth, there's a lot of bumper stickers or signs that's kind of lifted up or what's he saying he's saying your name is majestic right you have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babies and infants right you've ordained praise Um, he says when i look at your heavens and the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you have set in place what is man that you are mindful of him the psalmist is saying god your name is so glorious 
that little babies that are beautiful on one side of the spectrum, but finite and very vulnerable. And on the other side of the spectrum, the heavens, the unending, unfathomable glory, cannot. They, your name is written all over all of this creation. You are the source of this. So when we think of the name of God, we're thinking of what? We're thinking of His attributes, His glory, His beauty. So when you see that little baby walking down the hall that you want to just pick up, you know, everyone's after Randall, right? Picking him up. Or Axon, or all the babies, they're equal. We love them all equally. It's, it's the glory. There's something in you that just sees the glory of God. Right? And then Psalm 103. Grace Kids had to memorize Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. What is His holy name? What is the psalmist talking about? We love this poetry because they, he, the poets use rhyme schemes and parallelisms to show us what He means. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. So all of a sudden, His name means His benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. So, the name of God, His attributes. Let's bring this to real life. What is your worldview? What chair are you sitting in? When you are driving down the road and you get stuck in traffic, where's God? When you go to that doctor's appointment and hear bad news, where is God? When you hear good news, when you see something beautiful, when you see something ugly, how is, how is God fitting into that picture? When you daydream about your future and your job and your spouse and your calling, your whole construct of your life, how is God and His name being hallowed in, in your thoughts? That's where we're going. For many of us, I think the answer is we have no idea. You know, we sort of do what we do. We go to the bank, we make a deposit, we pull the money out, we spend it, we live. And then over here we pray and we have a spiritual life. But that is not biblical. A biblical worldview is this complete enmeshing that God is involved in everything. And we begin to see that in the Scripture. The question is, how do we get there? And that's exactly what Jesus is saying prayer is. It's, it starts with knowing that we are adopted in God, in Christ, and that God's our Heavenly Father. But that equally with that, and, and as a result of that, we also hallow His name. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, to sanctify the name of God means nothing else than to give unto the Lord the glory due His name. And so this is really an act of worship. Right? If, you are, uh, if you've been around our circle long enough, you've heard of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Just as a side note, we are a confessional church. Here's why. Someone says, what does your church believe? And you say the Bible. Well, you've pretty much, you know, every church believes the Bible, Right? So we are confessional, which means we believe the Bible, but we think the confession does a really good job, not perfect, of explaining theologically the Bible. Okay, So we have this Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, but then there's these two catechisms, a larger and the shorter catechism. Um, actually, the shorter catechism was written for children to memorize. I think now if an adult memorizes it, we're like, wow, you've memorized that? Back in the day, that was the way children were to memorize this, uh, this document. But we, most of us, even if you don't know any of that, have heard possibly the first question and answer. What is the chief end of man? 
to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To hallow His name. To worship, right? And I think probably in the Bible, one of the most explicit places of this happening is Isaiah 6. To hallow His name, you have in Isaiah, uh, of all the major prophets, he shows his calling later in the book, and it's chapter 6, where he finally says, here is where I was called to be a prophet. Here's what it looked like. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face. And with two He covered His feet. And with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. This is the part of the sermon where 90% of you are like drifting off. And here's why. We cannot handle the holiness of God. We just cannot. And Isaiah himself, who had already been prophesying at this moment, could not handle it. What does he say? Awesome! This is wonderful news. No. He says, woe is me. In that moment, earlier Shane in the confession said, he, he wants to, his lips want to do one thing, but his heart is somewhere else. That's where Isaiah found himself. My lips praise you. I even lead people in praising you or I encourage it in some way. And all of a sudden when I see God, the only thought I have is woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And then one of the seraphim fly to him with a burning ember, a burning coal, and touch his lips and say, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. The Gospel. Right there in Isaiah. The Gospel. You are forgiven. What was the result for Isaiah when this happened? Did he say, great, that's awesome. Now I can go do what I want. Live how I want to live. No, he says, when God says, who will we send? Who will go for us? He responds, send me. He immediately launches into a life of mission. That is what the Gospel does. That is what the holiness of God does. And here's what's amazing. is Jesus is teaching His disciples to pray. Okay? This is we're going to bring it back to this prayer. And Jesus is saying in one sentence, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now I want you to put yourself as a Christian in Isaiah's shoes, and you're going, you're either observing it or you're partaking in it. Holy, holy, holy daddy. I mean, that's what Jesus is saying. You are. Holy, and he says, Abba, Father, though that's not right there in the prayer, that's the way he referred to his Father. In one breath, holiness and Daddy. That is what the Gospel does. It, it brings you together. On, what our flesh wants to do is either dwell on 
the loving nature of God, the fatherliness, or the holiness of God. And kind of pick one side and sort of camp out. The Gospel brings it together. And our prayer lives have to bring this together. That God is holy. But we can't even begin to approach what that means as long as we don't recognize that He also is our Abba Father. Does that make sense? So the Gospel brings us to do this. And here, let's get practical then. Here we are, we're wanting to pray, right? We're all, hopefully, in a way, wanting to pray and grow in our prayer life. And Jesus is teaching us to pray. And this is encouraging. And what He is saying is, you do not know how to do this. That's encouraging. If you're in this room, you're a Christian, but you have a horrible, cruddy prayer life, Jesus is looking at you and saying, I get it. Let me teach you. That's encouraging. There's a process. There's progress to be had. There's setbacks. There's improvements to be made. It's not something you get when you hear the Gospel and it's over. Okay, That's, that's encouraging. Secondly, what he is saying is this is not a command. Hallowed, go out and hallow the name of God. Many people take it that way. Of course, Christians, we are to hallow the name of God. But it's a prayer. We're asking. We're asking that the Lord, His Spirit, would teach us individually and corporately what this means. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, maybe a great New Testament offshoot of Isaiah, maybe. Paul says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. The coal has touched your lips. You have been forgiven. You are wrapped up in the righteousness of Christ. God is your heavenly Father. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. This is our what we do. This is what the Gospel calls us to do. We hallow His name. Now, the next week we're going to talk about Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. So we're not going there just yet, but what is happening when we hallow His name, when we sanctify Him, when we set Him apart through our prayer, is we are being changed. The affections of our heart are being adjusted. The things that we like are being nuanced. Okay? If I were to ask, if someone says to you, I want to lose 10 pounds, great, why? How many people say to glorify my Father? I've never heard that and I've never said that. Right? I want to start really looking at my fiscal life and being responsible. Why? To glorify my Father in heaven. No one thinks that way. We're living in the naturalist chair. We have all of our goals completely over here because it makes sense, because it will help me. It will help our community. I'll feel better. I'll look better. I'll be happier. And all the while, we've left God, the one source of everything, out of our prayer life, out of our goals, out of our passions, out of our affections. What are the affections of your heart? What is the, that's a theological term meaning, what is it you love? and What motivates you? So, when we come in prayer, one of the things that we're doing that Jesus is getting His disciples, you and I, to do is to bring to the table not just the requests we make, but the very affections, the very things we like, 
the very reasoning. If you're honest with yourself, if I'm honest with myself, I think often I'm afraid of that. Because I really, really want to hold on to my prayer request. I really want my good things that I'm praying for. I want to be healed. And secretly I'm afraid God, and here's the catch, be honest, is there a part of you that thinks God isn't good? You see, if I come to Him and start asking Him what I should want, He may not want me to get better, to look better, to feel better, to have a better bank account, whatever it may be. Right? Our worldview is off. So how do we get better? How do we change that? I would commend to you a book by Eugene Peterson called Answering God, Praying the Psalms. The Psalms are the, pray, are the Bible's prayer book. That's what people have prayed, not only in the Old Testament, all the New Testament writers would pray the Psalms, but throughout all the ages of the church, the Psalms are where we go to learn the language of prayer. That is Eugene Peterson's point. And we really do read them and feast on them and learn how to connect to them. That's a great way to learn prayer. And he starts by saying, however, the very first psalm doesn't seem to fit. Have you ever read Psalm 1 and wondered, why is that there? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. I've read that and thought, oh, that's a proverb thrown in the Psalms. You know, like the Psalm writers thought, let's throw a proverb in here. We're kind of not sure what to do. No. What Eugene Peterson and I'm sure many others have said is what the Psalms are doing is they're getting you ready to pray. Before you start praying, you have to actually come in and meditate and chew on the Word of God. That is, hallow God's name. Beginning to say, what does it look like to, to be in Christ? What does it look like to be a Christian? And meditate on Scripture and chew and bringing your life in and, and exploring that. Is that that's, what, that's what Eugene Peterson is saying. And he's saying from that, you're, you're connecting your affections back in to God. Now then, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. Again, not a prayer. The word plot in that second psalm is also meditate. Same verb as, as the first psalm. But the point there is, Psalm 1 is you and I hopefully in Christ meditating. Psalm 2 is saying, here's what the world does. The world solves their own problems. The world meditates only on themselves and their own processes and their own efforts. The world sits in the naturalist chair where unfortunately many of us find ourselves. They're, they're answering all their problems by themselves. If you look at Psalm 2 closely, let, this is what the rulers and the kings say. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. In other words, let us cut ties with God. We don't need God. You can have Him on Sunday morning. You can have Him in your little fancy prayer time. But life is going to be lived apart from God. So as Christians, in light of Psalm 1 and 2, we realize that we have to work 
at, at meditating on God and examining our lives before Him. I want you to imagine if your life was a garden laid out, okay? And there's some weeds growing in it, okay? And you, if you are like me, and you don't like the garden, your temptation would be to act like the weeds aren't there, right? Maybe to throw some sand over it, maybe, maybe get a cheap little plant from Walmart and set it on top of it or something. That's what we're doing. We are utterly afraid of the fact that our garden is in disarray. Our lives are, are ruined in so many ways, and we have no idea what to do. And the Gospel comes and says, I, Jesus says, I'm going to go into that garden with you. And all you have to do is point out what's going wrong, and I'll help you. And so we come into this garden, and you see some tomatoes that don't look so great, and there's some weeds, and Jesus says, it's because there's no sunshine. Let me show you what it would look like if we... And you begin to actually see with true vision. Because the Gospel opens your eyes. And you're looking at this garden, and it gets more beautiful and larger, and it grows. That is what sanctification looks like. In the last battle, C.S. Lewis has this quote, or has these lines. And it starts with Lucy saying, I see, she said at last, thoughtfully. I see at last now. This garden is like the stable. It is far bigger inside than it is outside. Of course, daughter of Eve, said the fawn, the farther up and the farther in you go, the bigger everything gets. The inside is larger than the outside. This is a picture of prayer. This is a picture of the fact that in the Lord's Prayer, you have two simple phrases. Our Father in Heaven, hallowed be Thy name. And if we're not careful, we'll just always keep them small and stagnant and boring. But when we believe the Gospel, that, those lines become, the closer you get, bigger and more beautiful. And as we see the garden growing, and we realize we can hallow His name in schools and in parenting and in our marriage. And if I'm a critical person, He can bring joy. And if I'm, if I'm a sarcastic person, He can bring truth speaking. And if I'm an angry person, I can become kind. And if I have thin skin and I'm reactionary, the Gospel can grow in me thick skin. And if I'm someone that's thick-skinned and stubborn, the Gospel can soften me and give me humility. I can grow and become a great parent, a great husband, a great single person, a great college student, a great member of a community, because the Gospel is at work. We can go into missions. We can long for our community to grow and change. And we can actually unembarrassingly say, God is real. And He is at hand. And He is the source of everything. And why are we embarrassed? Because we're so nervous that we're going to be scoffed at. And because we have such unbelief. But the Gospel is big. And so we pray this prayer. And here's the beautiful thing. We pray it even, as Shane said earlier in the confession, I thought that was a great point. We pray it when we even don't believe it. I believe, help my unbelief. We pray, Father in Heaven, hallowed be Thy name. And C.S. Lewis and others have also said of the Psalms, when you come to the Psalms, these were sung by congregations. Right, Doug? Sung. 
And the idea is, theologians would say, it's the effective nature that you, you may start a psalm like Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. And you may not feel that way at all. But by the end, when you're singing it in community, you buy into it. It's a process. And we in Christ bring ourselves to worship. And we may come in stale and bored and downtrodden, but we leave renewed. Because God is real, Christ is real, and we can hallow His name. Thanks be to God.